Welcome to episode 538 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today with a really fun interview for you. Uh, I had a long, sprawling, very funny conversation with Jeff Vandermeer, who is known for oof, just a whole bunch of things. Um, probably Annihilation is his best known novel, but I mean, he just he sold millions and millions of books um, you know, all around the world. But he has a new book out. Uh, called Hummingbird Salamander, which we talk all about, have a really, really great conversation about. Um, and yeah, it was it was just a blast. We we talk about um, eco-activism and eco-terrorism and um, little things that individuals can do to kind of help save the wildlife, um, all sorts of fun stuff. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. So I'll let you get to that uh, in just a moment. A few little bits of housekeeping this one. I'll remind you, if you're listening to this on Monday, I'm going to check in real time on April 12th. If you're listening to this too on Monday uh, or Tuesday the 13th, on Tuesday afternoon uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern time, we are doing a special live uh, Zoom event with the Big Library Read author, Dr. Brian King. Uh, Big Library Read is currently going on right now, and the book is called The Art of Taking It Easy. Uh, we're going to do a live Zoom event that you can sign up for at biglibrary.com, or if you go to overdrive.com, it's like the first thing that you'll see on the website. Um, so check that out. Um, okay, uh, you can always reach us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com or at probooknerds on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I think that's just about everything. I'm going to let you guys get to this conversation with Jeff Vandermeer on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. I was laughing because... As you know, all of your books are usually very, uh, there's a lot going on in them. And I love that everyone calls you like basically the king of like weird fiction and all that stuff. But I was just laughing. So I was like, well, if there's ever a book you probably shouldn't read in 30 hours, it's one of Jeff's books. But well, I mean, this is a more fast paced kind of thriller type of format. So at least it hopefully I, I would I would pity, I would not be I would be very sad for you if you'd had to read Dead Astronauts so, fire <laughs> one like that because it's pretty damn dense. Yeah, that's home. fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, and like like you said, I was actually I feel like for your books, this one is I don't want to. I mean, it's a more grounded than I said. I don't even ground is not even the right word. Um, but you know, more of this earth than say right. like a peculiar apparel. Like you know, yeah. Well, that's literally <laughs> there couldn't be two books more different this world. <laughs> That was actually your most recent book that I read. I was laughing so hard. I was like, what a, like, what is this contrast? It's such a weird thing with that book, too, because, well, anyway, we got to go into the interview. Yeah. Just, well, yeah, uh, actually, yeah. Okay, well, I so I started the recording, and I can edit stuff around, but I'll do an okay. intro, like, on my okay. own after the fact. But okay. um, do you just want to maybe introduce our listeners to Hummingbird Salamander, and then we'll jump off from there? Yeah, do you need me to say my name, too, or? Nah, you're good. I got, I'll, I'll get all that. Thank yeah, so my latest uh, uh, novel, Hummingbird Salamander, is uh, about a woman who only gives her name as Jane, uh, who is given a gift of sorts by a dead eco-activist. Uh, and this gift is the gift of an extinct hummingbird in taxidermy. And this kind of leads her down the rabbit hole uh, to kind of like a paranoid conspiracy theory uh, involving what this dead activist might have been up to and whether it involves something that might have... Uh, worldwide consequences mm -hmm. and at the same time she gets so enmeshed in this mystery uh, in part I think because she's a little dissatisfied with the life she has mm -hmm. uh, that she can't get out uh, by the time she realizes that, that there's some 
really serious stuff going on, uh, it, it's kind of too late. And so it, it, it's kind of like a mystery and a thriller with, with all these environmental things uh, that are really kind of integral to the plot uh, because of the clues that she finds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've got some questions I want to ask you about, about like different, um, you know, writing different types of books because obviously people know you very well for like fantasy slash science fiction stuff and obviously kind of sort of horror with uh, southern reach stuff but this is you know like the one through line of anyone who's read your books over there is obviously you are extremely passionate about you know nature and the environment and jesus go on your website and look at all the amazing pictures (laughs) of your backyard um but i love that you described her as an eco-activist because in the book they'll call her an eco-terrorist or a bioterrorist and there's like it there seems to be this really interesting line and i'm like curious just in general like what your thoughts are on like because eco-terrorism is this really strange just in and of itself a really strange way to define like what are your thoughts on that like to the because you you've I've seen you give lots of wonderful examples of ways to just like simply help nature but that this is a much more extreme way like what are your thoughts on that weird way to describe what people will what lengths they'll go to to quote-unquote defend nature yeah well I mean I think the the the, the, the fact is and, and we even see this with the Black Lives Matters protests over the summer the, the shifting line of what's acceptable so right now we have our state Florida uh, trying to make basically peaceful protests illegal because of the BLM uh, protest. Uh, mm-hmm. So the same thing kind of happened with eco uh, activism in the 70s, where you know chaining yourself to a tree, you, you might get off with probation, but now you might actually get 10 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, let alone anything that's actually what might classify as 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 violence against property or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something I wanted to kind of explore in the book. And so alternately, Sylvina, the the eco terror eco terrorist or eco activist, is kind of like redefined through Jane's eyes as she discovers new things about her. Uh, but then you have to ask yourself, you know, what should an indigenous community do in Brazil? if an illegal mining outfit with armed guards comes into what is their territory, their, their mm-hmm. property, you know, what do you do? So, so there's situations all over the world where it's it, where the lines get blurred anyway. And then, you know, a novel I think is a good kind of like laboratory mm-hmm. uh, of the unreal to kind of like explore some of these issues. Uh, and then finally, you know, I was talking to environmental activism class and I could sense their frustration. Yeah. Like the idea that their teacher was saying, why don't we unfurl a banner at a Republican convention? It's like, they're not going to care, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you do? What can you do? Right. What are yeah. You actually, I've, I've heard you talk about that in the past about, um, and I've actually, you know, speaking of like black lives matter stuff, I've talked to um, authors over the past couple of years, like Leila Sai, who wrote mean white supremacy. And like, mm-hmm. had these conversations where I've asked them kind of like what you've talked about when it comes to the planet and caring about climate change is like, how do you approach people who are so like, just don't believe that white supremacy is a thing, for example. Mm -hmm. And she basically says kind of like what you have said in the past about climate change. She's like, my hope isn't to get the people who flat out deny what I'm telling them. My hope is to tell people who maybe don't realize that they can do something simple like in her you know but for the me and white supremacy situation like just evaluating how they approach life whereas Mm -hmm. like i've seen you say in the past like take a bit of your yard and just leave Mm -hmm. it alone like that i i do think is that kind of the people you're still trying to reach with your message you know even now like those people who 
can will at least approach making a difference and maybe just aren't as informed? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, and let's make no mistake about it, social justice and environmental issues are inextricably linked. And mm-hmm. you see that even in Tallahassee, where there are neighborhoods completely denuded of trees or there's a bypass through them be- because they didn't have the power that some white communities had to stop yeah. that. Uh, and that is definitely a very environmental thing, too. Uh, but yeah, definitely, I am not interested. You know, I, I see climate change deniers as kind of a cult. Yeah. Uh, and so, therefore, it's very difficult to deprogram them, uh, and it's not really worth my time to try. Yeah. But I do also find disconcerting uh, the fact that there are people who mean well, uh, but who just think that this, basically, you know, in their actions, they think this is something still that's 30 years, 40 years down the line, when mm-hmm. most projections tell us we're going to really be in the thick of it between 2025 and 2035, Yeah. which is for example, why locally I'm advocating that the city of Tallahassee try to become sustainable, completely sustainable by 2035, not our current goal of 2050, which is kind of meaningless because by then it'll be too late. Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, definitely I'm trying to reach those people, but uh, I also am trying now, there's a new thing where uh, even solar technology is becoming very extractive and capitalist, mm-hmm. like they're cutting down forest and gopher tortoise uh, habitat in Florida to build solar farms. Like, the irony of that is just, so, so that's a new thing we have to worry. You can't just say solar is a good thing. You have to worry about whether that also is going to become an extractive technology, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You have to like qualify every yeah. version. So you always got to be on your guard because it, it always leaks in. The system always tries to find a way to commodify everything. And yeah. Really um, you mentioned earlier talking to, um, you know, students and, and classes who were sharing their frustration and, and in Hummingbird Salamander, there's, I don't want to call it hopelessness because that's not what it is, but there, it seems to be like almost like a darker tone in the shift of like, you know, from the Southern reach trilogy with like nature and our involvement in it. Like, do you find yourself as you're having these fights both locally and, you know, to a much larger extent, you know, at, with, with your novels, like, do you find yourself getting a little bit dejected with just the way that society is like even people who say they care about climate change, not doing it? Like, how do you yeah. keep from being, you know, just giving up? Well, I mean, I think there's, there's two things, which is to say, I'm a, I'm a huge lover of kind of like the dark noir thriller, which mm-hmm. already has this edge to it. It kind of redefines what hope is within that context. So yeah. for thriller readers, I think this is, this is something that they're very familiar with and doesn't necessarily read as, as depressing. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It's, it's just the kind of the, 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 the atmosphere of a noir thriller. Uh, but what I would say is that two things, number one is to me, what's depressing is not facing the facts because if you don't face the facts and have the right facts, you can't have the right solution. So, so mm-hmm. that's part of it. It's like, you have to kind of, if you can, and obviously we all need a break from time to time from the news, but you have to try to figure out what you can do and how it all fits together. But um, but then also the hope is, is kind of in the lives of the animals that are described, like the fact that the hummingbird travels all this way and yeah. this hummingbird described might be extinct, but there are lots of species of hummingbird that are not extinct, yeah. um, that are still, you know, a, a species out there that, that can be saved. And, and, and not only that, but, you know, when we talk about the things you need to do to save species, they're really things to do with habitat as well that that are what we need to survive. And mm-hmm. we don't seem to, we tend to de-link these things. Like we can just do solar farms and we'll be fine. Uh, but if we don't have habitat, if we don't have uh, an environment and ecosystems that are functioning, we're, we're in real trouble ourselves. So. Yeah. 
Um, I, you mentioned the kind of noir aspects of this, and we were just joking before we started uh, recording <laughs> about the fact that your most recent, the most recent Jeff Vandermeer book that I read before this was A Peculiar Peril, which is just a wild and like fun, hilarious fantasy with like multiple worlds. And of course, there's the Southern Reach stuff, which is almost like genre horror, really. Like yeah. you have this incredible ability to write in these different genres. And I'm curious from a writing, maybe from a craft standpoint, like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you need to like get into the right mindset to do that? Or do you need to maybe like read specific types of books? Like, cause it feels so natural. Like if someone read this as mm-hmm. their first book of yours, they probably would assume the rest of your career was noir. Yeah. Like, yeah. how do you, um, is, is it like flexing different muscles? Does it feel mm-hmm. different for you as a writer? I'm just, I'm curious. I love talking about this kind of craft. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting question too because I, I write with the expectation that I'm going to lose and gain readers every time because <laughs> it's always different, right? Yeah. Um, I would say two things. When I was very early on in my teens, when I was writing short stories, mm-hmm. I realized that the short stories are very different, and I realized that when I started writing novels, I probably wasn't going to write the same thing twice. Yeah. So from a craft perspective, what that meant to me is that if I wanted to write widely and if I wanted to write also about very different characters, because sometimes the novels are different because the characters are so different and through their point of view, the style becomes so different. I would have to study. I would have to read extremely widely. Mm -hmm. I would have to very mechanically and with purpose say, look, these are the kinds of things I want to study in the books that I read, the fiction books. Mm -hmm. And that I, these are the kinds of techniques I need to learn. And so you know, something like Peculiar Apparel was such a delight uh, because, you know, there is dark humor in like a fire book like Authority and some of the other books, but it's it's just a small part of the book. Here, I got to actually <laughs> do something that's a lot more like uh, my Twitter feed or <laughs> how I generally talk, although not quite as um, uh, it's that kind of a style. But, mm-hmm. but, but you know, so, so sometimes it's just like I'm doing something I'm modulating the level. So something that's a small part of something else is a large part of another, but, mm-hmm. but it's very purposeful. And, and I would, I would highly recommend that if you want to write different types of characters, and if you want to write different kinds of books, you just have to study, study, study. And, mm-hmm. and that means immersing yourself in the kinds of books you want to write uh, as well. So like noir, yeah. you know, I took a job with publishers weekly a long time ago, just reviewing thrillers and mysteries so that it would just come at me I couldn't choose what I was reviewing and Mm -hmm. that was a great education in in this this area so when you get so when it comes down to when you like when you're going to start working on Hummingbird's Alamander are you the type of author who you'll continue reading noir while you're working on it or will you kind of like adjust and shift because I've had people um, I think Harlan Coben told us, he's like, when I'm writing my mystery book, I don't want to read yeah. someone else's mystery book. I'm always curious because then there's people who say the exact opposite. Like for you, which way does it work? Yeah, no, I can't read anything. In fact, I once got a book um, that was superficially similar to the one I was working on. And I couldn't just like toss it for some mm-hmm. reason. I, I was in a weird psychological space, but <laughs> what I did is I took a shovel and I buried it in the backyard. <laughs> That kind of like gave my subconscious the room it needed to write the novel. I know that sounds really weird. That's the only time that's ever happened. And then I felt really guilty later and I tried to dig it back up, but I couldn't find where I buried it. Um, so I, I really feel very guilty about that whole situation. But but that that shows you that I, I just, you know, I, I definitely don't. In to your- oh my God. That's an extremely noir thing to do for the book. <laughs> um, but, um, 
And also, I would say that you mentioned horror. I do think that there is an element of horror to everything, even Peculiar Peril, which is full of a character getting decapitated over and over, even if he keeps getting his head back. So. I was just going to say, if I had one critique of Hummingbird Salamander, it's a complete lack of a oh, uh, bodiless entity. Yeah, could have used more decapitation. <laughs> Oh man, anyone who hasn't read that book yet is just like <laughs> listening in like, what are they talking about? Right, right. <laughs> um, I will say- they laughing about it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we both just have, we share a sick sense of humor. Um, so something that I really love about Jane in this, again, like speaking of the noir aspects is, yes, she's extremely smart and she's extremely strong and she at the surface seems extremely qualified to kind of pick up on these- mm-hmm breadcrumbs that she has left um but what I really like about it is similar to why I think people like like Eddie Valiant speaking of noir in Who Framed Roger Rabbit is just like we don't like him because he's a genius we like him because he's like could just be anybody and like what I think Mm -hmm. ends up happening is you create this character in Jane who at first glance is a former bodybuilder and she's Mm -hmm. has all these things working for her but really it's almost like Sylvania like left her a note as if to say like anyone could pick this note up. I'm just curious if you care enough to do anything. And like, and I just, I don't know. I really love that. I think that's something that I've always loved about noir is like, it's not a superhero that we're following that we're rooting for. Usually it's a person who is down on their luck and let's see what they can do when putting them in that hole. Like, is that, did Jane always in your mind appear how she is in the book? Like, seemingly larger than life but you know when you learn more about her not so much yeah I mean I I think that um that it also depends I always find interesting in novels and in real life when there's someone who seems vastly qualified for something but the circumstances or the context in which they're put takes that away and I'm also really fascinated by how experts can unfortunately feel like they know so much that they make missteps so I Mm -hmm. think the fact that Jane's a security consultant actually works against her in some ways and her thinking that she has a handle on what's going on until too late because she has this knowledge. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then there's also, quite frankly, the fact that she has things in her past that she hasn't quite resolved um, that lead her probably to picking up the the mystery in the first place, you Mm -hmm. know? And and so I think part of the, the way the novel is written, it's also Jane kind of looking back, trying to figure out how she got so stuck into this situation (laughs) yeah you know and then also you know it's true that she does get out of situations because of her strength and that that was one thing that was key early on like without giving too much uh, away one of the earliest scenes I wrote is kind of a proof of concept is her Mm -hmm. walking up this hill and this guy following her and her suddenly realizing I can take him I don't need to run away from him and I thought that was pretty pivotal to thinking about her character uh, and, and once I had that scene, I kind of had the key to it that that this that, that kind of awoke her to the fact that she didn't have to act like other people sometimes. Yeah. Um, recently, uh, Christina Henry, who writes really creepy horror novels, um, we were chatting and she told me that when she starts off, like when a book comes to her, she it starts with one sort of image in her head. Um, it could be like a girl running up a hill in a red, in like in a red hood, or it could be um, someone discovering like a dead fox on a mountain, which is her most recent mm-hmm. one. You know, your books are famously, and I'm going to quote things I've seen, weird concepts, quote unquote. 
so for you like when when a story starts ruminating in your brain you start percolating on it like what is for you like what's the do you see an image or do you start like crafting out something when you're not sure if it's fully fleshed out like I don't want to say what inspires you because it's such a lazy author yeah no no, it's a good good question um I, I think that writers learn over time what it is they need to actually start writing in earnest and and what happens if they don't have those things and for me I don't have certain things I know I'm not going to finish the project so mm-hmm. I'm very careful about not writing too soon mm-hmm. like I've never started writing something too late but I have written something too soon and mm-hmm. the, the things I need are a clear idea of the character in my head uh you know some some things the, the most important things about that character an image attached to that character in, in this case it was I, I could see Jane's hand and I could see the tiny hummingbird taxidermy mm-hmm. in her hand and somehow that sparked a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I need to have some idea of the ending. Uh, mm-hmm. And even if that ending changes, at least to have that, uh, because anytime I write without that, I never finish the thing. So yeah. those conditions occur. And then I do a lot of thinking, right? So thinking for me is working out in the garden or, or hiking you know, kind of like getting out of my normal, you know, day to day, and then writing down whatever occurs to me. It might be scene fragments, bits of dialogue. You know, I write on pieces of paper, and then I bring it back and I put it in book order in a word document. Mm-hmm. And usually, when I have about thirty-three thousand words of fragments, then it, I know it's about time, or thirty thousand, whatever. But it, it's about <laughs> time to actually sit down and write a draft. Mm-hmm. But even that, I have to get like the first ten pages perfect in tone style, the character voice, and be sure that I can keep in that voice mm-hmm. before I write the rest of it. And then I will write a full rough, rough draft. So that, that's the usual process. And sometimes there's more structure, like like I'll, like I'll for one book where, where the events took place over 60 years of an imaginary city's history, I will have the actual history of the city and then what the characters are doing throughout that time span, mm-hmm. whether it's all in the book or not. Uh, one book took place over seven days, so I just had to have an idea of the basic scenes on each day. Yeah. You know, so, you know, that's the kind of thing I need to, to work. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. You said the, the 30 or 33,000, which very specific. I love it. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know why it does seem to be about 33,000. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, somebody, I think it was Linda Holmes. I don't remember who it was at this point. It was a little while back, but they said kind of the same thing. It was when I think they were writing their first novel. And they were talking to yeah. another author friend of theirs and they were like, so I'm at about 30,000 words. And the other author was like, and you feel like this is your make or break moment, like either keep going or stop. And they're like, yes. And like, whatever reason, every author, like it's that 30 to 35,000 word thing. It's yeah. Um, you mentioned taxidermy there. Is that something that you've always had an interest in? Like that's, it's just something that jumped out at me. I was like, what an interesting hmm. thing to want to talk about when it comes, especially to, um, you know, protecting habitats and things because for right. an obvious reason but like what is it about taxidermy is that something that you had to research for this project or is it a thing you've been interested in a little bit it's something i'm interested in but i kind of share jane's point of view which is they always find it kind of weird like in themed restaurants and stuff mm-hmm. kind of like this <laughs> fake macho thing and i understand that it has real value from a natural history point of view and things like that but but there are also fraught things associated with it. And if you really like, you know, what I always do is ask myself, if this were about a human being, how would you feel about this? <laughs> <laughs> so if you went into a restaurant or surrounded by taxidermied human beings, how would you feel about that? <laughs> so so um, it's not a, a tried and true like parallel, but it's something that helps me kind of like redress 
possible foundational weird issues we have uh, about animals and our separation from them. Uh, so, so I thought that that would be interesting. I also thought it was interesting ever since I read uh, some books by Edward Whittemore set mm -hmm. in the Middle East where these spy novels where there's a guy named Stern who starts out as a peace broker. He wants to do peace in the Middle East and he winds up because each group wants guns becoming a gun runner over 30 years. So mm -hmm. I thought, you know, what if there's an eco-terrorist who really wants to do something positive, but is forced to compromise in various ways mm -hmm. without getting into too much of what happens in the novel, the taxidermy winds up being part of the compromise. And I find that fascinating too, because there are good compromises and bad compromises in the environmental movement. You know, there's things you sometimes, you have to sometimes work with the hunting community or something else, and, and that can be a good or a bad experience. So um, I thought that added a bit of complication and, and also it gives you this object right at the beginning that, that I think has a lot of uh, power and significance. Yeah, I, it, you mentioned that it becomes something um, that, that Sylvia kind of does. And there is a specific scene. I am not going to give anything away, because, <laughs> but there is a specific scene that involves um, what may end up being taxidermied animals. But let's yeah. just say it reminded me of Shawshank Redemption in a way that made me want to shower after the fact. Like, oh, oh my God. Well, yeah, and I, I, I really, that was a really interesting moment in terms of thinking about structuring a novel, uh, mm -hmm. because if you put that, if you don't put that at the end, then you really have to have like a reboot of the novel after, yeah. after that scene. So that's really what, that, that's really what I, I, I thought about. I first thought that was going to be in the, in the final part of the book, but then I realized it wasn't really about that. It was about the aftershocks of that and how right. it affects Jane and actually makes her more paranoid and everything. And and uh, as you may recall, the, uh, well, without getting into details, smells and things can mm -hmm. be in the narrative oh. in a way that's pretty horrifying. But, but, you know, that's part of what a novel can do is show you kind of like the visceral nature of these things. So it's not just this abstract of, you know, a, a redacted, full of redacted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, everyone listening in, I know we're both being ludicrously vague. Read the book. The payoff is going to be so worth it if for us not telling you. Oh. Um, apropos of nothing, have you read the book Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnett by any chance? I have not. I know that's one of the most recent uh, ones that uses tax I mean, I specifically didn't read it uh, for that for that reason. Yeah. Because I was trying to get Jane's point of view on taxidermy, and and so I was very determined not to have any other things yeah. come in. But well, the only reason I yeah, the reason I mention it is because not only is it taxidermy, but I believe it's based in Florida, and it's yeah. much different tone. It's like a yeah. humorous. Um, oh, sure, yeah. yeah, it's good stuff. Um, I will say this book, uh, your book, also makes me basically never want to use the internet again. I guess like anytime <laughs> I like anytime I read a security related book, I'm just like. Um, you know what? I think Thoreau had it right. Like, I'm just going to go find a pond and build myself yeah. a cabin. <laughs> yeah, that was that was interesting because I, I needed to have some aspect of the Internet there because it's mm -hmm. so prevalent in our lives without having a lot of pages that were like <laughs> fake web pages or, you know, and even the text. I did something yeah. where there are texts between two characters in the novel and I stylized them. So mm -hmm. there's not a lot of misspellings or abbreviations. Yeah. Just like with dialogue, you know, we're kind of giving a stylized version of it. So I'm sure someone will call me to task for that and say the texts were not realistic. Um, <laughs> but I just can't stand reading that in the context of a novel because it's something you have like in your daily life. You mm -hmm. know, and, and, uh, it just doesn't work for me usually in a, in a book. Yeah. Uh, what did you find most challenging about writing this book? That's a good, good question. I mean, I think 
with a thriller, it's always about the beats and the progressions. I mean, it is that way for me for all books, but but knowing how to cut scenes and where scenes should go. Mm. Uh, so like one thing that <laughs> drove me a little nuts is that the the, the printed galley for this book, um, it wasn't until I could see it in printed form that I could really get a sense of the beats. So some you know, little bits of information moved around mm-hmm. after that. So it's like, I'm so waiting for people to read the finished book because I feel like in a thriller, even a little bit of a beat or progression being off a tiny, you know, like a, a, a couple paragraphs out of, out of whack can, can make a difference. So it was mm-hmm. really getting that right. But at the same time, you know, it's got this interiority with Jane, who's a kind of eccentric character that's kind of like destabilizing that kind of thriller thing. So I can't mm-hmm. be too, you know, uh, hitting those beats the, yeah. the way you would in, in, in your, your, your normal thriller. So, so it was kind of a challenge to do that, you know. Yeah, when well, I will say that something that I really liked is I it, it at least felt like to me that the chapters were they they weren't like extremely consistent, um, you know, yeah. page or paragraph lengths, which I think helped with the way that kind of Jane's mind works and that we're, you're supposed I, I don't know. I feel like that subtle disjointedness helps a lot because the story itself, it's not like even when there's a thriller or you're reading a mystery book that you it's a murder mystery for example right, like right. say an agatha christie book like you, you know that like you said there are beats that you expect mm-hmm. even though if even if those beats are going to be like here's a plot twist but this book right. i don't think i don't think of this as like just a quote-unquote like just a mystery so i do think like that slightly jarring nature of like oh this chapter yeah. is three pages and this one's 13 whatever it is like i think that helps because this isn't even a question. This is me just saying, well, job well done, I suppose. Well, well thanks. Well, well, I mean, you know, it was oddly similar to um, uh, uh, Born in one sense, and that the scene we were talking about earlier that, that's fairly horrific, all things taxidermy and other things, <laughs> yes. you know, it's, it's really also about damage. You know, the, the mm-hmm. character suffers PTSD from this. And in Born, I have a similar situation halfway mm-hmm. through the novel, just by chance. And I realized that there, there, that, that, that I couldn't, I couldn't go by the conventions of the genre there either for the very reason that if I did, I wouldn't deal with the very real issue of the consequences. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I hate in books is when something terrible happens to a character or something, you know, life altering, and then they just go on and maybe there's some allusion to it later, yeah. but you don't really see how it lives in their body, how it actually affected them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a plot device or it's just a thing that happens. Uh, and so for me, for these kinds of characters, it's really important to do that. So that was the overriding thing, you know, going into the second half of the book where she becomes more paranoid, mm-hmm. you know, and is also more isolated. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you want to ground your characters somewhat. It's like when you watch an action movie and someone, there's an explosion behind someone and they just like walk away. It's the right. same thing, like, no, like so, she goes yeah. through some stuff early on, like yeah. she should be affected by that. Yeah, I agree. And you're absolutely right in terms of the movies. You, you can tell a good movie in this genre as opposed to a bad one and, and as to whether the writer continues to follow through with that, that mm-hmm. thread or whether it is, like you said, just an explosion or just the, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things, I, I've got a, a few like kind of rapid fire fun questions for you, but one thing before I get there, I'm just curious because it feels like we're getting closer to the end of our pandemic, but I'm curious, like what has brought you joy over this past Jesus, 13 months now of like <laughs> of us being able to go anywhere. Like what are things that have brought you joy just personally? Well, you know, I had a pretty close connection to our yard here in Tallahassee, which we've been rewilding, but yeah. not traveling at all 
uh, has definitely given me a better perspective of the animal life down here, for mm. example. So one thing <laughs> is that I now know each individual raccoon that lives down in the ravine just because I have so much trail cam footage and stuff. And uh, I have a better sense of the armadillo's personality. And I know that sounds like small things, but you know, they, they're definitely good distractions at the same time that they're actually helpful in making sure our efforts are useful. Mm -hmm. uh, I think also, you know, Anne and I have always been very close to my wife, but you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's brought us maybe even closer together. Um, mm -hmm. uh, although we're also very good about finding our separation yeah. <laughs> during the day, you know, because yeah. you need that, especially if you're just on, on a small ship together for mm -hmm. a year, so to speak. Um, so those are the kinds of things. And then yeah. I have actually found the time to get more involved with local politics and things like that. And, and I feel like that will eventually uh, bear fruit later this year. So. Yeah. Um, I know you're making jokes about the raccoons, but I'm telling you, man, people, I feel like people in the book Twitter world, there's also this like Venn diagram of so many people love also seeing that good animal content. Like um, Chuck Wendig, I think had like mm. a whole Fox thing going on for a while. Yeah, yeah. Aaron Morgan certain posted a bunch of pictures of these foxes in her backyard. And like, I'm telling you, I think book people, you know, readers, authors, we also are nature people. So I feel like that is the content you should be sharing. Anyway, that's good stuff, seeing all the different raccoons and all this stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's hilarious, actually, because I thought I would lose followers when I started posting the nature follower. And I think I gained like 30,000 followers. So there are people who don't even know I'm an author, which is pretty hilarious. Also kind of horrifying but <laughs> from just a sales point of view. But you know, <laughs> you guys got to follow this environmentalist. It's Jeff Van Gogh. He's a great guy. This, this tree hermit. That's right. <laughs> oh, he writes books? Oh, oh he's going out of book great too. I bet those books are very grounded and close to nature and like very straightforward, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think the best one was um, we just lucked into doing this joint event with David Duchovny on the book tour. Yeah. And, um, and there were some people who were like, I didn't even know he was an author. And now there's this placard with both their faces on it. Uh, like, that's so funny. It's like it's a, little, a little amazing to me too. But at the same time, it's just like, it's, it's kind of funny. And I guess it's a good thing, actually. Yeah. Oh, that's delightful. Um, all right. So towards the end of our episodes, yeah. we like to ask nine, not that anything I asked you was very heavy, but nine lighthearted questions. Okay. Um, call them the nerd nine, just because we are fans of alliteration. Uh, so the first one is what's the last book you finished reading? Oh, goodness. The last book I finished reading. Uh... I will also accept a book you're currently reading. Okay. I'm reading uh, uh, Alexandra Kleeman's latest novel, which is out in August. And don't ask me the title because <laughs> it just slipped out of my head, but it's, it's amazing. It's an mm -hmm. amazing satire. It's an amazing book about climate change. It's so funny as well. Alexandra Kleeman, August. Do you have a favorite place to read? Yeah, I mean, to be quite honest, I usually read uh, in bed before falling asleep. And then if the book doesn't put me to sleep right away, then I'll, I'll read on the couch in the mid-afternoon in, in the sun. So, mm -hmm. uh, Do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? You know, I had one formative experience where I was, I had a creative writing class in high school and my teacher, Denise Standiford, handed me Angela Carter's, um, one of her books. Uh, mm -hmm. And it just blew my mind because I was writing in a fairly ornate style back then, a little bit like Peculiar Peril. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that you could do that. I didn't have any guides for it. So when I read Angela Carter's Bloody Chamber, it, it just was like, oh my God, you can do this? 
you know, mm-hmm. so that was pretty formative. Yeah. Uh, when we're allowed to officially travel again, it, what's one place you'd like to go that you have not yet visited? We had planned to do a driving tour of um, Norway and Sweden Ooh. and uh, and see the wilder places there. So that, that's one thing we still want to know, do. We have some friends there uh, in both, both countries and um, hopefully we'll still get to do that. Sounds amazing. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Well, um, I, because Easter's coming up, I would just say I have fond memories uh, when our, our daughter was younger because she she liked to burn peeps uh, over an open <laughs> flame. I don't know why. But, so we have this family tradition of, although we're not very religious in that way, of uh, mm-hmm. some rather maniacal photos of us like laughing hysterically as these peeps are burning. So <laughs> That is freaking delightful um are you a coffee person or a tea person oh coffee person black no sugar no 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 milk mm-hmm. anything I, I need that in the morning uh, or i'm useless <laughs> uh cats or dogs cats i've had dogs but uh, our cat neo uh, is probably one of the most amazing uh animals we've ever had and, uh, and i say cat yeah do you have a favorite food well, right now there's this place called Blue Turkey that serves the Berlin Turkish street food uh, mm-hmm. in town that just opened. And, and their wrap with, of all things, some French fries, but then also this really great chicken and all these, these, these amazing vegetables and stuff is just, oh my God, it's so good. Awesome. And then uh, last one of these, if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? Well, you know, um, there's lots of people, but the one that first comes to mind is the author, uh, uh, Louis Bayard, uh, mm-hmm. because he's uh, absolutely la- a laugh riot, and it would be yeah. lovely to see him. So I'm sure that, you know, after this, we will want to have a dinner party with more than one person, but he's the one that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, last question for you, Jeff. What do you hope readers take away from reading Hummingbird and Salamander? Um... I think something about the beauty of the world, because there is a lot of that in there, even though it's in dire you know, circumstances mm-hmm. uh, and urgency. And then, then just kind of a, an understanding of just how difficult it all is and that we need to forgive ourselves and we can't necessarily grapple or cope with it all at once. That's absolutely perfect. The book is amazing. I'm so excited for people to read it. Jeff, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.